Well, let's continue in 1 Peter. Peter is continuing to build up the church, continuing to encourage the church to have a backbone and stand upon the gospel that is certain to bear fruit of holiness in their life and to do this in the way that they live all their life, that they would be counter-cultural in every aspect of life. And this is what we'll see in this passage. So 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for help as we unpack this passage. Uh, Holy Father, we want to honour Christ as holy in our lives, yet we understand that we live in a world at the moment that is hostile towards you and the things that you institute, the things that you have ordained for life and godliness. And Lord, we pray that as Christ was hated uh, by the world, we also would endure hatred because of his name. Lord, as we come to this passage, we pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us with great encouragement to know that we are standing upon a certain hope that you will win. You have won, you have victory over sin, Satan and death and you will put death completely under your feet and sin will be no more and your glory will reign forever and ever with your church, your bride who is spotless and without blemish. Lord, as we come to this passage, as we continue to build this weight of a transformed, changed life, would we be holy? Would we be set apart? Would we be be countercultural? Lord, would we feel just the weight of our generation and the lies of our generation and would we speak truth in the midst of them, having a defense for our faith, knowing that it is the only truth, the certain truth, the stable, steadfast rock on which we should build our life. We pray this, Lord, for your glory and exaltation. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a great need and growing need to understand our generation, to understand any given generation, but ours particularly since we are living in this generation. We need to understand its culture, what it worships and its sins. And the Apostle Paul was incredible at understanding the generation of his time. In fact, what we see in the scriptures is the people of God were either really good at understanding the culture of their time, or really bad, and they became like their culture. 
One of the themes that we see throughout the scriptures is that Babylon is a pagan place, a place that is hostile towards God. It becomes the metaphor used throughout the New Testament in Revelation, uh, and, and of course it's happening in the period of the, the, the prophets and the book of Daniel. But there's another place in scripture where we see uh, it's different, it's open to reason, it's called Athens, it's the Greek culture. The Greek culture was this place where everyone could have an opinion, everyone could share their thoughts, and everyone was eager to learn. Teach me what I do not know was sort of the way that they would go about it. This is what we see in Acts 17, 16 to 19, when Paul is on his missionary journey, he's going to all different cultures, but he comes to Athens, and it says this, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him in him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those whom happened to be there. Some of them were Stoic philosophers, also, also convert, con, conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him in, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Athens was not like Babylon. Athens was a place where people were eager to learn, eager to change, eager to have reason. They heard this babbler about foreign divinities and they said, I want to know more. Teach me more. We are not in Athens. We're in Babylon. We're in a nation that doesn't want reason and doesn't want lo logic. We're in a nation that has thrown out reason and logic. Babylon was hostile towards God and the things of God. Babylon was encouraging people to worship their God and their God alone. Babylon threw people into the fiery furnace and the lion pit. Babylon was not willing to have public discussions of the things of God. Yet as we examine our generation, are we living as if we we're in Athens? That we still have a seat on the table, that Christians are still invited in to the public sphere, the marketplace, the council, to sit at the table with those who are calling the shots and reason with them. Is that our reality? It doesn't seem like it. That's long gone. And to be honest, I don't know if it ever existed in Australia. We call this Christendom, a period of time where the church grew and consumed places like America, a country founded upon Christian values. But now we aren't in Christendom. We are in a place much more like Babylon. And we are called to not become like Babylon, but to build there. As we use the passage from Ezekiel early on, uh, sorry, uh, Jeremiah early on in this, that we should build and care for the city that we are in because the city's prosperity is our prosperity. We need to build again so that one day we will be in an Athens again where men are open to reason and willing to listen to logic. But at the moment, that's been thrown out. Reason and logic has been thrown out and what has it been replaced with? Men doing what is right in their own eyes. This has happened before. 
We say that history repeats itself, but I think it's better to say that it rhymes with itself. To repeat itself means it's nearly exactly the same, but it's never exactly the same because times have moved on. History over and over again rhymes with itself, and right now we are rhyming with a day like the the book of Judges or the time in Babylon, when men would do what they thought was right in their own eyes. And we have a need to understand our generation, to make sure we're fighting the right battle of our time and not fighting a battle that happened many hundreds of years ago. See, every generation has had its battles with the Christian faith. If it's the early church, it was the battle of Christ's divinity. Was he truly God? If it's the Puritan age, it was the battle over the Word of God and who should have access about the Word, sorry, the Reformation generation. And if it's the Puritans, it was about holiness and building our holy lives and having distinctly Christian lives uh, that were separate from the world. We are not fighting those battles anymore. The battle we are fighting is for family, is for the family is for God's creation mandate. And if we need evidence that we are not in Athens anymore, that we are in Babylon, let's listen to the new law that has been passed this year in Victoria and probably eventually will pass over the whole country. This is the most extreme law around conversion therapy in the world right now. It's passed, it came in in February, and it says this, Section 3, Objects of the Act. It's quite long, but I'm not going to read it all. To affirm that every person's sexual orientation and gender identity is not broken or in need of fixing. That is their opening uh, statement of the object of the Act. These practices that would be considered illegal under the Act and could see fines of up to a certain number and imprisonment up to 10, 10 years. These are the things they state. Prayer-based practices, praying that someone may no longer have same-sex attraction. Religious leaders meeting one-to-one and pursuing a member of their congregation to suppress and ignore their feeling of same-sex attraction by practicing celibacy. Running a peer, a a peer-to-peer support group, uh, deciding to coach people who are exploring their gender identity to accept the sex that they were assigned at birth. A religious leader tells a member of their church they will be excommunicated if they continue their same-sex relationship and prohibit them from returning until that relationship continues. All of these I have participated in. All of these most of you have participated in. All of these mean we could end up being arrested and put in jail simply for standing upon the Word of God, simply for being truthful about what God designed the world to be. I don't tell you this to alarm you. I'm calling us to be ready because the church hasn't been ready for so many generations. Peter has been doing the same to these churches that he's written to. Be ready, church. Have a backbone. Stand upon the truth, because the kingdom of God will prevail. It may feel like we're losing this battle, but we're going to win the war. So church, 
Peter has been calling us from the beginning of his letter to know that the new birth that God has caused in you will indeed change you. That is a certainty. The new birth that God has caused in you will indeed change you. It will change you to love the things of God and to hate the things of this world. Or, to say it in a different way, to hate the things of Babylon. It is not possible for you to be in the kingdom of God and not be transformed and not be sanctified. The promise is that those who are called will be justified and glorified. And the bit in between is sanctification, being that you will be purged from sin. Sin will be purged from you. So, as Philippians calls us, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that this new birth is hated by the flesh and the world. Jesus, in loving and compassionate, warned his disciples in John 15, 18 to 7, uh, 19. He said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is confronting. Because for so long the church's strategy has been to be loved by the world. But we aren't to be loved by the world. In fact, if we are loved by the world, we're probably doing something wrong because it says the world hates Jesus and will hate you as well. We should measure our success, really, by how much the world loves us. Are we like the world? Are we looking like the world? The call of the law was that they would purge the evil from among them and be holy, distinct from all the nations. That is the same for the church. And Christ purchased that with his blood. He died under the wrath of God in order to purchase our holiness, which is to be set apart from the world. He died on the cross to set us apart from the world. So church, it's okay to be hated. It is okay for the church to be disliked in our world today. And Peter says it like this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But if even you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Another way of saying this is, what can man do to you? You have been delivered from the judgment of God. He is the one who, is he is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And He will deliver you. Whatever they plan to do to humiliate us or imprison us or fine us, it will always work out for our gain. This is the message of the gospel, that our suffering works out for our gain. We sung about it in one of the songs, that God will deliberately ordain and shape our suffering around us specifically so that we grow through it and it only burns off the dross and only refines the gold. Even our death works out for our gain. So the worst thing that could possibly happen to us in this world, death, works out for our gain. We go to be with Christ. So who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good. 
Say this law, this conversion therapy law got put into practice, which it's likely it will in the next little while, and one of our members ends up in jail. Do we believe that gain would come of that? Because the Apostle Paul did in 1 Philippians 12 to 14. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, which is his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to, the rest of the, and, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are being more bold to speak the word without fear. So two things have happened. The whole imperial guard have heard about the gospel, that he is there because of Christ. And secondly, everyone else has more confidence to preach the gospel. Do we believe that if we stand upon the truth of God and we are fined for it, we lose our job for it, we're put in prison for it, we will see gain in the kingdom? The promise of the scriptures is that we can't be harmed. We may be physically harmed, we may be uh, jobless, we may be put in prison, but we cannot be harmed if we are zealous for what is good. So what is good? Well, we know that God alone is good, therefore the things of God are good. And we need to understand what is good in our day and age. As I said, we need to be aware of the battle we're fighting. We need to not be LARPing, live-action role-playing, dressing up as Puritans or the Reformers and fighting the Catholics. That's gone. That was the battle of the generation well before us. Our battle is against the family, against God's creation mandate. A generation that says God has no right to tell us that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. That God has no right to interfere into our use of sex. That God has no right to say that marriage is the only appropriate place for sexual relationships between a, one man and one woman. Our generation, the battle is against God's creation mandate. It's against Genesis 1 and 2. Did God really say? It's the same lie of the garden. Did God really say that marriage was between one man and one woman? Did God really say that children are a blessing and shouldn't be murdered in the womb? Did God really say that there are only two sexes? man and woman. Yes, he did, to make it simple. And this is the generation that we are fighting. This is the battle that our generation needs to fight. Satan wants us to be distracted with things of the past. Satan wants us to be, uh, to, wants the church to lie down and play dead. But we, as we read 1 Peter, are not reading the battles that they were facing. We are facing something different. The aim is to throw out the whole family system. In fact, our society loves death because if we keep promoting the things that we're promoting, there will be no be fruitful and multiply because there's no ability to have children anymore. We either murder the ones in the womb, we have same-sex relationships in which they can't reproduce, or we dismember ourselves so that we can't reproduce. That is the reality of our world today. So... Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
What is good in our generation? God's family. The mandate of Genesis 2. That one man and one woman would come together in one flesh and be fruitful and multiply. That is a beautiful thing. It is ordained by God. And the word zealous means to acquire or to defend. It does not mean to sit back and be passive. It does not mean that we should be silent. The word zealous means that we are going to defend the good things of God. It means we're going to speak up. But I want to come back to remind us, church, that we can't be harmed. Honestly, the scriptures are full of victorious passages. We may be losing this battle. In Australia right now, the church has been silenced. But the church, although asleep, will win the war in Christ. So church, we need to awaken. We need to come back to the victorious passages like Psalm 2, which declares God's victory. Sing them aloud with one voice. And chant them, knowing that we will overthrow the world and have victory in Christ. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. God, who sits in heaven, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he has. His king, whom he has set on his holy hill, is Jesus. And Jesus is victorious. We may be in a generation where the church has gone quiet, But it has not gone quite globally. It is making ground all over the world. Australia is in desperate need of a revival and a reformation. And it starts with us. Yes, we're a small church, but are we going to speak up as 1 Peter would call us to speak up and have our holy lives as a witness against this generation? It goes on to say, have no fear of them nor be troubled. Peter goes on to push the church even more. Do not fear them or be troubled. As we keep hearing the news, as we may hear of this law being played out in Victoria and people being prosecuted for simply praying for someone to be healed of the sin that's in their life, we need not to be troubled. We need not to fear. Church, don't fear the mob in your office when they celebrate Pride Month and you don't. Stand up for the next, stand up at the next Christian, for the next Christian who publicly gets ridiculed for standing upon the truth of God's word. We we need not fear because they will be trapped in their own net. We see this in Psalm 15, we see it in Romans 1 that sin itself is a trap. That if we keep going down this path, we will tear down the family and there will be no more fruitfulness. Humanity will cease to exist, literally, if we continue down this path. 
We will stop being fruitful and multiplying. We'll be conquered by another nation that is being fruitful and multiplying. It's just that simple. We will run out of reproduction if we don't be fruitful and multiply. If we continue killing babies, if we continue having relationships with the same sex, if we continue dismembering our reproductive organs. Children are God's mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Psalm 127 says, children are arrows in the hands of a warrior. What are arrows used for? Battle. If we don't have any arrows, we are going to struggle to win. So children are to be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They are to be nurtured in the ways of God to catechize them through the scriptures so that they may grow and be arrows pointed at our culture and not toward ourselves as the church has done much recently. So church, fear not and nor be troubled and listen to the charge to Joshua to be strong and courageous for the Lord your God fights for you. Stand upon his promises. If God says, raise your children in the way they'll go and when they are old, they will not depart. That is a promise we can stand upon. It's a promise we can stand upon in our life. If God says that marriage is a good thing, then it is a good thing. The Lord is fighting for us. As Matthew Henry said, your enemies are God's enemies. His face is against them. His power is above them. They are the objects of his curse and can be nothing to you and can do nothing to you but by his permission thereby trouble not yourself about them. They can do nothing to you but by his permission. Therefore, if he uses them to sanctify you, it is for your good and for us to be removed of dross and to be refined like gold. Gain. So if we're not troubled and we're not fearing and we believe that no harm can come to us because we believe in the victory of God, we have something to do in verse 15. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But instead of fear and trouble, we are to honour Christ as holy in our hearts. Do we know the weight of holiness? When the Bible speaks of our hearts, it's our whole being. It's our thoughts, our feelings, it's our strength. And we are called to honour Christ as holy in our thoughts, feelings and strength. So every part of our life we are recognising Christ as holy. I want us to think about the weight of holiness here. Holiness means to be set apart. How, 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 how far apart? Well, the Bible says as far as the heavens are above the earth, which is something we can't even understand. We need to understand that Jesus is not just bigger than us. He is nothing like us. He's in a different category altogether. Yes, he became human, but he is fully God. Therefore, he is nothing like any one of you. Because he is fully God and you are not. 
Holiness is what we should fear in God. When the Bible says that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, what first is revealed is that He is holy. He is not common. When all other things is create, are created, God is not created. He's self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere. You can never understand Him completely. Jesus is not common. He's utterly unique. In our preaching, in our conversations, in the way we conduct our life, is Christ honoured as holy? It feels like what we have tried to do is commonize Jesus, making him this most tolerant, most accepting person so that everyone's inclusive, except included, except he himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't accept things that reject his law. Jesus said, I do not throw out the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. Not a dot, not an iota will, will be removed. I have come to fulfill it. Therefore, when God says that marriage is between a man and a woman, that sex is its proper place within a family unit, that is good and holy. Holy. And we should uphold it as holy. When we sit and hear an attack on God's good design, whatever it may be, but in our generation it's always going to be the family. It's obvious that that's what we are under attack on. We must think and remember Jesus is bigger than these guys. Because you're going to treat either one of them as holy. If you cower to the crowd... You're saying they are bigger than Jesus in your actions. In your heart, you are not honouring Christ as holy because you fear them and what they can do. But the truth is, they can do nothing. So to do, to honour Christ as holy in your heart is to stand alongside Christ as He stands upon the truth of His Word. And it's to not cower to a crowd of people who were chanting against the family or against men and women and masculinity and femininity. Now let's just think about people asking. We're not in Athens, right? As I said at the start, people aren't really coming up willingly asking for us to reason with them anymore. People are asking, but... Every Pride Month, people are asking. They're asking, maybe not directly, but we have an obligation to defend the reason we have for our faith in those situations. For so long, Christians have gone quiet. But zealous doesn't mean that we are quiet. Think of Jesus. He was zealous for his father's house. Zeal for his father's house consumed him that he flipped over the money changers in the temple. Did they ask him for a reason for his hope? Not at all. He came forth and gave them a picture of his hope by flipping over the money changers. 
He says, do this with gentleness and respect. But this also needs some clarity around it. Because I want us to remember that Christians are not meant to be pushovers. Jesus was not a pushover, nor was Paul a pushover. What this phrase is saying really is that we need to have range. We need to have good range. The prophets, Jesus and the apostles had range and they knew who their audience was. To have range means you can speak to one person in one way and another person in another way. We do not teach children necessarily the same way we teach adults. When I'm sitting down there before the service with the kids, I'm talking to them in a different tone, a different voice. If I'm talking to men, I'm going to be more direct. If I'm talking to women, I may be more gentle. But Jesus set this example. Think of the story of Jesus at Simon the Pharisee's place and he's, wa- he's being washed by a prostitute. She's washing his feet, she's washing his head or anointing his head. He turns to her and he's gentle with her. But to the self-righteous, to the Pharisees, he's quite direct. He's quite harsh. Jesus had range. He was not one-dimensional. As we used the example before, he went into the temple and flipped over tables because zeal for his father's house consumed him. We need to learn the difference between speaking like a prophet and speaking like a physician. The prophets at times speak words that are harsh and direct and are true to the self-righteous. But then we need to be gentle like a physician and able to tenderly care for the people that we're speaking to. Right now I'm speaking to the church. The church calling us to be motivated for battle, calling us to be encouraged, calling us to go forth in a fight. Would I speak this way to someone who was struggling with same-sex attraction, transgenderism, just aborted their child? Absolutely not. That would be cruel. It would be tender, gentle, respectful, reason with them in the Gospels, open to the passages of Scripture, point them to Jesus to say that there is forgiveness full and free in Christ through His death and His resurrection. Maybe I'd weep with them as well as they suffer. But I'm not speaking to those people right now. I'm speaking to the church. And we need to be ready for battle. Each one of us go into a workplace that is secular. Every one of us goes into a workplace that has a culture. A culture of worship. That is what culture means. What they worship. And we, as those who are Christians, cannot participate with them. If you have been born again, as we quote at the start of our service, if you have been born again to a living hope, you are made holy. And you must uphold Christ's holiness over and above anyone else's feelings. Christ's holiness is far more important than anyone else's feelings. This passage wraps up with this line in verse 16. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Knowing that you have stood firm in God's word and upheld Christ as holy is our aim. That is what it means to have a good conscience. 
We must walk away from a conversation, from an interaction where we have had a good com- conscience of holding up Christ's holiness. This week I repented because I felt like I didn't do that. This week I had a conversation with a non-believer, a secular person, and had to repent after it because I did not hold Christ up as holy. I was a coward. And if people in this world charge us with evil, in the end they will be put to shame. Because they will be put to shame because sin always produces death. This is why we need to sing the Psalms more. Because when we sing the Psalms, we see the reality of what God is doing from generation to generation. David was in a mess at the, at, at the image of the wicked prospering. And we could be the same. We could be sitting back going, the wicked are prospering everywhere I look. It feels like the church is, ha, has no ability to succeed. And then you read Psalm 37 or sing as one church, Psalm 37. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And Peter finishes with his last warning. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. God is good. God alone is good. And it's better to suffer for living for God if that is God's will. And in many generations that has been God's will. As we've already seen in 1 Peter, it is God's will that we would suffer so that the dross of our sin and the weights of life will be purged from us and gold refined, uh, pure and spotless will be left. And it's our turn. We're alive. Not the Puritans. Not the Reformers. Not the apostles. We are alive. We are the church. And it's far better to suffer fighting for God's good design and God's goodness than to sin. The good that God would have for us is family. And this is the war that our generation has. Sure, come and talk to me if you think there's another battle waging. But I think everything we see on the news is clear. That what we are in a war of is the importance of family. And the deeds of evil people produce death. As I've stated before, what will come of the deeds of our secular society is only death. They do not love humanity, they love death. Jesus loves people. And he designed the world for his glory and for the benefit of his people. Daniel, when he was in Babylon, started his objection to his generation by one thing, one step of faithfulness, refusing to eat the king's food. We have no idea why he did this. There's speculation about it all throughout the the scholarly works, that he refused to eat the king's food. And from this, this small small step of faithfulness, he became a major player in swaying kings. Not just one king, many kings. 
Of course, he had to keep making steps of faithfulness, and they became harder and harder to make, with more and more threats as he became more prominent. We may never have a platform like Daniel did, but you all have a platform in your workplace. You all have a platform in your neighbourhood. You all have a platform in your social circles. Are we going to honour Christ as holy and defend the hope that we have in Him? Or are we going to continue to sleep like the church has been sleeping for the last 20 or so years? Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we ask you, Lord, to strengthen us. Because it's one thing to be safe in this room and speak boldly. It's another to go out and live it. Lord, when we don't honour you as holy, may we be quick to repent, knowing that there is forgiveness in Christ, that he died the death that we deserve. But Lord, I pray for boldness, that we will have the scriptures before us, the promises that you have been faithful to standing before us. And would we go with absolute confidence that you will win over this age. That your beautiful design of one man, one woman, forever, who will multiply, be fruitful and multiply, is a beautiful thing. And nothing else can replace it, despite our world trying to. Lord, we pray that you would overthrow the wicked. As we've read in Psalm 3 and Psalm 37, would you break the jaws of the wicked and would they be swept away with the grass? For these churches around us that preach heresy, I pray that you'd close their doors and you would call them to repentance. For the churches that are moving in that direction, Lord, I pray that you would lead them back quickly. And for us, would we remain steadfast? Would we be not in five or ten years' time, quietly going about our business with no disturbance at all. But Lord, because we speak up, because we're defending the hope that we have and holding Christ up as holy, will we have disturbance that produces gain, suffering that produces gospel fruitfulness, which you have done from the start of creation or the start of the fall. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you will win. We thank you that we'll enter into your kingdom because of your promises, because of your work on the cross. May your name be glorified forever and ever. Amen.